internet. Once again, it is the conversation with your sometimes host, Francesca Fiorentini. How are you all? Are you ready? Um, my first guest I'm super excited about. He's a staff writer with the American Prospect. Uh, his name's Alexander Salmon. Alexander, how are you? We're doing great. Thanks so much for having me on. Good, yes. Well, I had you on. I had you on personally to talk about this article that you wrote about campaign finance and fundraising specifically when it comes to the Democratic primaries. It's such a good piece and you basically go over three different um, lanes of fundraisers. You talk about the traditionalists, the super rich and the reformers. Um, and I just wanted you to just go over those with us by starting with the traditionalists. Who, who is raising money in this election under sort of the traditional ways that we know candidates to raise money? Absolutely. So the traditionalists have kind of struck the, the, um, the kind of centrist uh, ideological stance in this race. So that's Joe Biden, it's Pete Buttigieg, it's Amy Klobuchar. But it's also been some of the uh, the the shooting stars that have already burned out. So uh, Kamala Harris, Julian Castro, way to phrase it. <laughs> um, and 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 Cory Booker. So so they've kind of done what what Democratic politicians have done for time immemorial, which is they've um, they've done high dollar fundraising events. They've they've pressed the flesh with with the super rich and you know coastal enclaves in San Francisco on Wall Street. You name it. They've benefited from um, super PACs. And they've used those kind of mechanisms to put together a pretty substantial uh, financial backing to to um, to fund them in, in in the race. Right, and yet it's actually not working, as you just said. There are some stars that have burnt out thus far, um, and those traditionalists aren't raising the kind of money that we're seeing from the reformists. These are folks who are earning uh, or getting their money through small dollar donations. They've sworn off super PACs and big uh, dollar fundraisers. Um, who are these reformists and how much money are they making? I think obviously we all know who they are, but but just just lay that out for us. Yeah, absolutely. So, so yeah, so Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren obviously are the two um, who kind of represent this new approach to fundraising. And, and obviously, uh, Sanders had uh, a pretty substantial grassroots army in 2016. So I think that we've kind of gotten used to it in, in some way, and it seems maybe less spectacular. But what he's doing in this race and what Elizabeth Warren is also doing is, is something that's never been tried in presidential politics at this level. And what they're doing is basically funding their campaigns entirely on small dollar donations. And um, that's something that's never been done. I mean, Sanders obviously, even in 16, had a lot of small dollar donations, but he too did you know, did some of these paid events. He did some fundraisers. And so it's a big leap of faith. And uh, to this point, it's been, it's been rewarded you know, incredibly. And, and obviously Sanders is kind of set the, the high watermark uh, again and again on these fundraising uh, records. But you know, at the end of quarter four, he had almost $35 million, which was obviously record setting at that point. And then in January, he turned around and, and brought in $25 million in one month. Wow. And, um, you know, and, and those are, those are, they're startling numbers. They're, they're extremely large and, and it's very impressive. And, and that's not to say that uh, Warren's numbers haven't been impressive also. It's just, uh, you know, standards are even larger. So the two of them have taken a big risk in doing this and they've kind of gone without the corporate sponsorship or the big money sponsorship that, you know, has been, has been part of the process forever, and so far it's 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 paid dividends in, in a major way. And how are they stacking up against those traditionalists like Klobuchar, Buttigieg, Biden? They, it seems like they're raising more money than them. 
Right. And that's what's so interesting about it is, you know, especially take, take Pete Buttigieg, for example, he on the stump has argued that embracing these big money fundraisers is actually kind of a, you know, an actively populist social good. And, you know, he's not going to turn away money from anyone who wants to help beat Trump. And that's, you know, that's even more extreme than we've seen from um, from Democratic politicians in the past, even corporate Democrats. And despite that, despite that incredibly fulsome embrace of big money forces, you know, Buttigieg's biggest quarter was $25 million. And, you know, Bernie blew him out of the water by $10 million in, in the fourth quarter of 2019. So, you know, it's it's interesting. It, it seems as though um, there actually is less money in the in, in the traditional approach all of a sudden, which is a, a paradigm shift that I'm not sure any of us would have anticipated going into this election. And um, the candidates who have hitched their wagon to the kind of large money bundlers, Joe Biden is the same way, right. have not put up those big fundraising numbers that the, actually the small dollar uh, candidates have, have been able to, to mount. Yeah, and I was I was curious about the the point you made in your article that actually it's harder to fundraise those from those big dollar um, donors, and why is that? It's an interesting uh, it's an interesting glitch in, in the process here, <laughs> which is that those those high dollar fundraisers, um, rich people who who cut big checks, they take a, they require a lot of attention, and they like to be. Uh, Need to be weighted on hand and foot. And they need to have their their egos massaged, as the, as the case may be. So, um, you know, it takes a lot of time to raise money like that. And um, in the case of you know the kind of most ignominious moment of of fundraising so far, I think in this cycle was Pete Buttigieg in the wine cave. Well, you know, he spent hours at this wine cave having dinner, cracking jokes, you know, uncorking his his you know most charming one liners and assuring his his investors, as they called them. Um, that you know that things are you know going to be fine and, and he's the horse they should bet on. Well, one of the one of the attendees, you know, after this whole thing became a, a major national story, took to the Washington Post to defend the sanctity of this event. And part of what he uh, used to to defend it was that he had already given Buttigieg um, over upwards of, of two thousand dollars and could only give eleven more dollars uh, before he was maxed out legally. So right. Buttigieg. You know, spend hours attending to this guy, and, and I'm sure you know, many others. But for for eleven dollars, you know, the return on investment there is not going to uh, it's not going to blow away any of his former uh, coworkers at McKinsey. So <laughs> it, it, it's an interesting uh, it's an interesting problem where you know it's Sanders and Warren because they can send an email and say you know we need money, we're working for you, and the money comes in. They don't have to spend so much time pressing the flesh, and it actually ends up being a more effective fundraising mechanism, by the way. Right, because they can be out there and actually talking with voters, as you were saying, doing campaign events and and such. Let's talk about obviously the last lane of fundraising, which is the super rich, the self-funded candidates like Tom Steyer and Michael Bloomberg, the billionaires, which. I thought was fairly unprecedented, and um, I'm wondering if I'm wrong. Is have we seen this kind of um, pay-to-play before? You're absolutely right. Insofar as we've never seen it at this scale, and certainly never seen it at, at this level of competition. So someone like Ross Perot was a self-funded billionaire, right? And he he ran for uh, the presidency in 1992, in 1996, a libertarian. He succeeded basically in, in ensuring that uh, Bill Clinton won both times. So um, it's there have been there have been self funders at various levels of government. It's mostly um, it almost always has resulted in defeat. But we've never seen anyone like Michael Bloomberg before, and 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 that I think is is a point worth mentioning. And, and you're right to identify 
the amount of money, the sheer financial force that that Bloomberg brings into this race is unlike anything we've ever seen. Right. And interestingly enough, you know, it's Tom Steyer. If Bloomberg wasn't running, Steyer might be, you know, the, the something we've never seen before in terms of just how much money he has behind him in his self-funded race. So it's you know, it's a byproduct of this this moment of acute inequality, um, and it is it is historically unprecedented. Yeah, I mean, it's almost like. You know, progressives have railed against dark money for so long, and you know we wished it away, and now we've gotten something far worse. You know, it's like we cut out the middleman, and now we're just left with a billionaire. And you know, it's you as you point out in your article, like what if Jeff Bezos tomorrow decides to run for office? I mean, he's got however much more, many more billions of dollars than than Bloomberg does. But at the same time, we're in a moment where you're saying we either have these small donor funded candidates or billionaires. What do you feel like that says about the political moment we're in? Uh, yeah, it, it's an interesting referendum on, on this moment. So I think, you know, it's been 10 years since Citizens United, the Supreme Court decision was, was you know, codified as, as law. And, you know, m money has never been more uh, involved in politics. I mean, you know, seeping through every pore of the political process at this point. And so we've kind of reached this interesting, uh, you know, breaking point where we can either go one way with this, um, you know, surprisingly democratizing small dollar approach that is something that you know ten years ago we would not have even thought was possible, which right. you know is a positive development, or we can go the other way, which is this, you know, this massively uh, financially endowed self-funded billionaire who's going to basically buy. Uh, not just the, not just the apparatus needed to run a campaign, but the, the votes essentially uh, to to win one. And and you know it's 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 certainly an inflection point for us in our democracy. And I think if if Sanders say is able to is able to pull this out with just small dollar donations, I think that we'll see uh, something like campaign finance reform will be possible. Um, whereas you know if we end up with Trump versus Bloomberg as the ultimate billionaire versus billionaire slobber knocker, um, you know, in a in a multi billion dollar election. I I'm not sure what that portends for our democracy, but it's certainly nothing in nothing in the uh, in the realm of campaign finance reform. That's really interesting that you say that. You feel like that if Sanders can prove that he doesn't need those big donations, actually, that's more of a case for campaign finance. Um, I would think that if Bloomberg is the nominee, that would be a huge case for campaign finance reform. But of course, I mean, yeah, I don't know. That would also make us all sort of throw up our hands and be like, well, I guess you need you know $60 billion to run for president. So just lastly, can it be done? Can actually we defeat, you know, can Democrats actually defeat Republicans if they're not playing their same money game? That's the, that's the question. That's exactly <laughs> the right question to ask. Um, just just based on my research and, and and what I did for this for this piece, I I think there's reason to be optimistic and um, and you know I don't want to say for sure that you know it's certainly going to work, but just the the sheer number of uh, donations that the Sanders campaign has brought in, and honestly the the engagement that Democrats have gotten at, at all over the ticket using small dollar donations, so up and down the ballot, at, you know in House races like Alexandria Ocasio Cortez or Katie Porter. Um, Elizabeth Warren in the House and her or in the Senate rather in her previous runs. There is a lot of um, there, there. There's there's an emerging uh, set of evidence here that says that this may be possible. And the Sanders campaign said, you know, they well think that they could raise a billion dollars off of this. And there's no, I've seen no reason to think that's not true. So wow. um, it's it's certainly a leap of faith 
I, I think that they're against all odds is actually a real case uh, here to say that this could work and, um, and it will make Democrats better legislators. It'll make them better politicians because they won't be beholden to the interests. And I think it may be uh, a winning combination, which is um, something, you know, it's silver lining in, in what's largely been a fairly dark uh, news cycle when we, we talk about the you know, presidential politics. Absolutely, we are at a funding crossroads. Thank you so much, Alexander Salmon, for joining me. Um, staff writer at the American Prospect, check out his article there. Thank you. Yeah, thanks so much. Take the money and fun, run. I think it was run. Take the money and run. <laughs> he just told me it was run. Um, all right, read his article, and we will be right back after this short break. Welcome back to the conversation on TYT. I am your sometimes host, Francesca Fiorentini. What's up? Thanks for being here. Uh, my next guest is running for Nebraska's first congressional district. Uh, her name is Babs Ramsey. Babs, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me, Francesca. So you um, are a progressive Democrat, and on your website, I love this part where you say, my beliefs are genuine, non-focus group tested, and not aligned with what the Democratic Party thinks I should say. Um, what inspired you, Babs, to run for Congress? Yeah, so what inspired me to run was I watched Jessica McClure's run against Jeff Fortenberry in 2018. And I just kept thinking like, wow, I, I feel like I could really do this someday. And after watching him uh, continue to vote against women's rights, didn't support raising the minimum wage, didn't support the um, Violence Against Women Act, and doesn't support the Equality Pay Act, I was like, I've got to run against this guy. So that's that's really what caused me to jump into this race. That's that's a good many many <laughs> good reasons. Um, you are in a district that's a pivot district, so one or a county that voted for Obama in 2008 and then voted for Trump in 2016. Um, tell me about specifically um, the rural voters in your county and and the fact you have a lot of farmers and ranchers. And I know one of your big issues is actually repealing the Trump tax cuts. How have those affected those ranchers and farmers? Yeah, so actually the farmers in our district have have taken a lot of loss in revenue from this uh, trade war that's going on. Um, Cumming County in my district uh, has actually been the most affected in our state. They've lost $48 million um, in in revenue loss from the tariffs alone. Um, that is according to the Nebraska Farm Bureau. Um, and since those tariffs have been imposed, we have lost over $2 billion. Um, so our farmers are just, they're hurting. They want to get back and like be able to actually sell their goods. I was actually in uh, Wahoo, Nebraska a couple of weeks ago, and this farmer told me that he's, he's not being able to sell his grain but anything that these big ag corporations already have, they are shipping down to Brazil and just circumventing the tariffs that way because they're able to do so. Wow. Um, yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> so there are these workarounds to, of, right, to, because they're put in this hard spot with the trade war. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so um, the, the the family farmers are being affected, but the big ag corporations are able to bypass a lot of these tariffs by just like shipping it to a different country and then taking the 
extra money that China is paying or uh, for grain and being able to um, make up the difference for themselves and our farmers are still left with nothing. So it's actually just hurting family farms and smaller farmers more than, of course, yes, the big corporations will always mm -hmm. find a loophole. Um, and I, I, you yourself know a lot about farming. We've just had Bloomberg claim that it's super easy and that anyone can plant a <laughs> seed in, in some soil. Um, so how has that in, in, uh, informed your run? And, and I don't know, I also kind of am interested in your thoughts on the Green New Deal and how um, looking towards a future that is sustainable, right? How does that um, intersect with your constituents in, in, um, in your district? Yeah, so um, uh, despite what Bloomberg thinks, farming is an extremely hard uh, uh, career path. Um, that's, I was raised on a farm. I, uh, my first job was for a farmer on the other side of our section. Um, it, it's really hard work. You are, you're tired at the end of the day, you know, um, and it's, it's dusk to uh, dawn, you know, for a lot of them and, and you're waking up early. But um, to answer your question, I, I am the only candidate in this race that does support a Green New Deal. Um, it's what I've been campaigning on. Um, I want to bring to the table uh, what we in Nebraska can provide. Mm. And what we have is ag land. And there's been multiple studies done about how we can deposit carbon into soil. And it's the second most effective way to combat climate change versus planting a bunch of trees. Mm. So we can compensate our farmers by allowing them to um, do the sustainable farming that they're already doing and and pay them to do it to help combat climate change. Right, and are they receptive to that? Do they understand? Um, I mean, I'm assuming they do, but like, what, what? How have they been receiving that that idea? Yeah, um, the ones that I've talked to, they're like, "Heck, I've been doing sustainable farming practices on my own for years, and you want to make it so I can get paid to do more of it." Yeah. Um, <laughs> So they're they're very receptive to the idea. They they think it's fantastic. Um, so it, they they know they know what to do, um, and they know what to increase yields, increase um, uh, better farmland for for beef and everything. Um, so they're they're absolutely in, uh, excited about this. Yeah, and do they see themselves, I mean, because they really can be, I think, family farming and sustainable uh, agriculture, they can be on the front lines of helping to combat climate change. And we, we don't often put them on the front lines of this fight, but they absolutely are. Yeah, absolutely. They are. They are definitely on the front lines of this. They're, they're the ones that actually are dealing with the climate change um, a lot more than um, anybody thinks. Um, my district, last spring, we were hit by a bomb cyclone. Um, it caused massive flooding here in Nebraska. Um, uh, actually, it was over $1.4 billion in, that Nebraska had gotten in damage um, from this bomb cyclone that that caused all the massive flooding. Mm. Um, in my town of Bellevue that I live in, um, the Offutt Air Force Base, half of it was underwater. Um, going out into town, uh, out of town into the country, um, there's a little town called Winslow, Nebraska. And they're actually considering moving a town that's been there for over a hundred years because of all the flooding that's happening. Mm. It, that's, that's crazy. I mean, these, 
people in the rural areas are dealing with it and they know that something has to be done. And that's been their number one thing when I've talked to them. Wow, yeah, they absolutely are on the front lines. And so um, pivoting a little bit, you, um, you're trans and if elected to mm -hmm. Congress, you would be the first trans person in the US Congress, which is huge. Uh, I know that you started a support center for transgender people in your town. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I guess my question is around the hurdles that you faced, you know, being trans and being in this race, um, what kinds of things have you confronted? Um, there, surprisingly, there hasn't been as much transphobia out there um, for a district that voted overwhelmingly for Trump. Um, you know, you would think that you would see that more, but it's been very little. Um, one thing that is a, is kind of a hindrance in my race is uh, I don't have the um, option to quit my full-time job to spend all day out there campaigning. Um, and making phone calls and doing all these things because uh, if I were to quit my job, I would be, and I lose the race, I will be out of work for probably around a year or more um, because it's really hard for trans people in Nebraska to get jobs. Right. Um, so that's definitely a big, uh, I, I work full time. As soon as I get home, I pick up my kids from school and I uh, I hit, hit the campaign trail, Yeah, <laughs> so. I'd that say that's been the is biggest insane. thing. <laughs> that that yeah. yeah, that is huge. And I think yes, and a lot of other candidates I think are feeling the same thing. I know we spoke to, I believe it was Nabila in Georgia. Anyway, candidates who are running on getting themselves healthcare while they, you know, while they mm -hmm. run their races. So tell me, because you obviously you're you have another Democratic opponent. What can mm -hmm. you tell me about that opponent? And um, your primary is coming up in May 12th. So how are you feeling about it? Yeah, um, I'm feeling really good about our primary. Um, I am running against uh, state senator, uh, her name's Kate Bowles. Uh, she is a conservative Democrat. Um, she is backed by the DCCC. Um, she has been able sh to just make phone calls and that's all she's really been doing is making phone calls to raise a bunch of money um, to compete in the district. Um, but she hasn't been out talking to people and that's all I've done from day one. Um, I am the only candidate that supports Medicare for all. I'm the only candidate that supports a Green New Deal. I am the only pro-choice candidate. She is an anti-choice candidate. Really? Yes. Um, she also was backed by the NRA in 2012 in her uh, state Senate run. Um, she took money from TransCanada and supported the Keystone XL pipeline, which is something a lot of people in my district uh, strongly oppose. Um, and she also hasn't released a single plan um, since entering the race to say what her issues are. Um, she has three bullet points on the front page of her one page website and it doesn't say what she plans to do. Wow, that you just ticked all of the trigger boxes <laughs> when it comes to being a horribly corporate Democrat. Um, and so what is, what's your vision for Nebraska more broadly, Babs? Yeah, um, so what I want to do outside of you know the Green New Deal and supporting Medicare for all, um, I want to end the trade war and I actually have a plan to do that. One of the th first things I want to do in office is I want to uh, repeal Section 232, which you know is what Trump, the Trump admin is using to enforce all these tariffs that's crippling my state and many other states. Um, and that way uh, we can go back to Trades going, trade 
tariffs going back to um, uh, congressional approval yeah. um, like we used to have. Um, I also want to expand rural broadband. I've rolled out a, rural, a very comprehensive rural broadband policy because mm -hmm. I've worked with municipalities in the past um, and worked in, I've worked in technology for almost a decade. Um, but uh, there's currently 25 states uh, out of 50 states that block or outright ban municipalities from creating their own ISP. Right. And Nebraska is one of those. That's great. So, well, thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much. That's all the time we have. Um, sure. Babs Ramsey running for uh, Nebraska's first congressional district, also with an adorably cute cat behind her. <laughs> Best of luck to you, Babs. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. Thank you. All right. And that is the conversation, just a Monday edition. Thanks so much for watching, and we will see you next time.